Thank you. Hi. You get a front row seat. That means you get to you get to make funny faces at me. No. You know I had a woman fall asleep once. <gasps> well, she was older, and she had just come, you know, because she was excited about history. She wore these really pretty big hats, so it was okay. But she would just sit there and she'd just nod off, and then she would come. <laughs> I was like, you know, that's the only person I've ever put to sleep, so that's not bad. <laughs> Time did he text that? Because he's probably a whole hour late. Eight ten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll just do his part. It's all good. I can talk about stuff. Okay. I mean, I can keep talking. Okay. All right. I can talk about how we did things in the World History Project because I didn't really do any of that. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really plan to talk about any of that. So, and then I have a good ending. There's lots of seats up here in the front. That way you can stare at us. Good morning. I'm so happy to see a full house here. And um, we may, we're hoping we'll soon have an entrance from um, our third speaker. There are supposed to be three of us on this panel. However, we are from the central time zone. And while we understood as we were traveling that we were changing time zones, uh, one of our speakers did not make that adjustment on his alarm clock. So he is on his way. And so um, when a tall, handsome man comes in, hopefully very soon, <laughs> you'll know it's him. So we're, I'm really happy to see a packed house here today. It must mean that a lot of you are either involved in these kinds of projects or you want to be or you have a special perspective you want to share. But um, we are here representing the Sharp End Heritage Committee in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, since the spring of 2014, the mission of that committee has been to remember a once vibrant black business district in Columbia, Missouri one that disappeared because of urban redevelopment, and to bring some healing to a persistent wound in the community. Joining me are Mary Beth Brown. She's a committee member, a professional historian. Soon to join us, I hope, will be Jim Witt, who's the committee chair. And he's really the guy who had a dream and was inspired to do something about it locally. I'm Tony Messina. I'm Civic Relations Officer for the City of Columbia, and I provide staff support for the Sharpened Heritage Committee. So we're your two-person, soon-to-be three-person tag team for this session. Thank you. These are the goals for this session. Um, each of us will speak from our own perspective and our own experience, and we'd appreciate it if you could hold your questions till the end, and then I hope we can have kind of an informal give and take with this group, because that's why you're here. I've been a public servant for about 36 years. It was mostly in state government. And I think this slide generally represents the experience that I've had. <laughs> 
excuse me. Uh, you really hope for some smiley face moments. But if you're like me and you work in the background, a lot of people don't even know. So people may not notice what you're doing, or even if you tell them, their reaction may be, meh. But sometimes government just doesn't get things right, and we, we come up lemons. Um, such was the case with urban redevelopment. I don't know, back in the 1960s, I was a mere child then, I don't know how people were thinking about the long-term consequences about what they, or of what they were doing. Um, I think it was probably fairly obvious to people we have some troubled neighborhoods, we need to improve our um, assessed valuation, we need to see if we can stop some decline. So let's level things. As you might expect, that was not a popular action in some of the community. Um, so even when we have the best of intentions, we can come up lemons. I joined the city in 2006. And soon after that, I began to hear talk about eminent domain and land clearance for redevelopment authority. And whenever these words were spoken in public, it just rained lemons. As I listened, I became aware that redevelopment was a kind of code for the dispersal of the black community in Colombia. So the bitter aftertaste, that big lemon, still is present in the community, and it's even expressed by people who had no firsthand knowledge of that experience, uh, no family members involved. But there was definitely a great deal of unrest whenever those words came up, and that's still true today. Your historians, your archivists, your museum people, uh, you know there's a good case for your being involved in all kinds of projects, including public policy making. I didn't really know this until I met Mary Beth Brown. We were at a state association meeting together, and I became aware that she had a lot of knowledge about Columbia history, including urban redevelopment. I knew that when I looked around the table of uh, department heads in city government, I didn't see anybody there who had firsthand memory of that. And in fact, uh, the way people come and go in our community and in the organization, that memory was very transient. So I thought it would be a good idea to ask Mary Beth to bring her slides to one of our cabinet meetings. And I think after seeing those slides, we really started to get it. Without that context and without that knowledge, our police department might hear about these wounds but not understand. Our city planners might hear about that, might be dismissive or just assume that happened in the past. It's not going to be present with us anymore, but that really was not the appropriate assumption. So um, Mary Beth helped us with our decision making, I believe, just by showing up and sharing the truth. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Columbia, Missouri, and Missouri, if you're not familiar with it. Is anyone familiar with Missouri? I might just ask that. Okay, that's pretty good. We're one of the M states. I don't quite think we're in flyover country, but that's probably open to debate. Um, I, like to <laughs> I like to think of us in Columbia um, as sort of a set of nested boxes. I mean, Missouri is part of the Louisiana Territory. So it was uh, a busy crossroads for westward expansion. Um, we're a launching pad for the, the core of discovery. We're the home of great rivers and trails that drove commerce. We're the show me state. 
We're the outlaw state. We're the cave state. We were a Civil War border state, and we still struggle with that identity. Since I'm a native of Missouri, I can say it's pretty confusing to live there. I don't know if we'll ever work these identity issues out. Um, Columbia is in the middle of the middle, so we're nested in mid-Missouri. We're halfway between St. Louis on the east, Kansas City on the west, and driving through, some people might think of us as a few truck stops, but really there's a lot going on there. Um, higher education has driven this community for a very long time, and we'd be very different without it. We have the University of Missouri. It's been there since 1839. We have Stevens College, and we have Columbia College. So what that means is there's a lot of coming and going. We host about 40,000 students in Columbia for about nine months of the year. Sometimes it makes me think we're kind of a resort or a retreat where people come for a while and then they go back home. But what can you say about communities where there's transient memory? I think that's probably true in most places, but it may be a little more pronounced for us. Um, with every student who graduates and moves on, we lose a little something. With every family who moves away to seek other opportunities, we lose a little bit more. With every grandparent who moves away to be closer to grandchildren, again, we're losing more. And when, whenever there's a death of a person with firsthand memory, especially of many, many years ago, well, you can imagine what that does. And so at some point, we lose the context. We lose the heritage. Memory is a very very transient thing. I know it is for me as I get older, but as a community, we really lose a lot. Which brings us to Sharp, Hint, Sharp End, which is nested in the heart of Columbia. Um, it's a, a block long, it was a block long business district on Walnut between 5th and 6th Street. For about 60 years, that cultural heart beat very strongly, um, but urban redevelopment claimed it. And as it did many other communities, those memories started to disperse. I believe they went underground. A lot of the people were still there, the family members who remembered that, but the memory wasn't addressed in public. So from what I could see, from my limited perspective, um, that memory stayed underground until somebody said, eminent domain, land clearance. And then the memory came back as a wound that was still open. I'm going to put you in the hands now of Mary Beth, and then when he arrives, hopefully very soon, Jim Witt to carry on the rest of the story. Good morning. Um, and I know this is going to really bother the microphone guy, but I'm probably going to get up and show you things in the picture. So I'm just going to talk really, really loud. So if you can't hear me back there, just wave, wave your hands. Um, so on the screen is a statistic about the number of neighborhoods and people who were directly affected by the federal government's urban renewal programs that were at their height during the late 1940s through the 1970s. In Root Shock, um, Dr. Fullalove examines the effects of Root Shock from urban renewal projects. She defines Root Shock as a traumatic stress reaction to the destruction of all or part of one's emotional ecosystem. Many of the people living in areas that were part of urban renewal projects suffered from root shock because of the displacement that occurred during these programs. Full Love argues that the result was the cutting of roots, with the result being the loss of such things as shared language, culture, dietary traditions, and social bonds. Essentially, community identity and memories were often lost along with the buildings that were torn down. 
As we'll see with Sharpened, the community lost a central gathering place when urban renewal occurred in Columbia. Dr. Fullalove looks at the effects that shot root, root shock had with a particular focus on African-American community members whose stories she says have not been told. Her book was written in the early 2000s, and I think we've really started to tell some of these stories a lot more than we used to, but um, we just have to remember when she wrote that. Uh, some of the communities she looked at were Roanoke, Virginia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Newark, New Jersey. In most of these communities, struggles still exist that relate back to urban renewal. This idea of root shock is a good way to describe Columbia's African-American community in the years following the urban renewal projects of the 1950s and early 1960s. There is still a great deal of resentment and hurt towards city leadership, no matter who the city leadership is, because of what occurred. I'll now spend a few minutes talking about the timeline of the Douglas Urban Renewal Development Project in Columbia and its significance for the African-American community. Um, that map just kind of shows most of downtown Columbia. And, okay, here I go. Um, that red line up there is uh, Business Loop 70, which is just south of Interstate 70, which is kind of our divider between North Columbia and South Columbia. And then that red line over there is 63, which is kind of the interstate that runs on the east side of Columbia. So this area was known as the Douglas Urban, Re Urban Renewal Development Area. And it was one of four areas in Columbia where African Americans lived throughout the 20th century, pretty much. Um, two other areas that are on here are this area over here, which is, was Cemetery Hill. And then along the railroad, which was Railroad Row, and then up here near what says Moore's Boulevard. This is a map from the 1950s. But up near Business Loop 70 was the fourth little area. And just to give you an idea of um, population numbers, in 1930, Columbia had 2,301 black community members, and they made up 15.4% of the total population. In 1960, we had 36,650 people in Columbia. 2,892 were non-white and made up 7.9% of the total population. The passage of the U.S. Housing Act in 1937 and 1939 allowed local communities to take advantage of the federal law and led towards consideration of Columbia beginning slum clearance. Although Columbia created a housing authority in 1941 to build low-income housing, it was repealed a few years later. And it wasn't until after the Housing Act of 49 that the conversation regarding public housing and what to do with Columbia slum housing really intensified. During the summer of 54, the Chamber of Commerce was developing their program of work for the next year, and included in this program was an item to study and learn the best method of attack on the city's substandard housing and cleaning up of blighted areas. And these are just um, newspaper headlines that pretty much detail the history of urban renewal in Columbia. The newspapers described the houses in the Douglas School area as slums, where the houses were deteriorated, the area had insanitary conditions, and there were bad fire hazards. They said the area was too congested. One block had 17 dwelling houses and a warehouse. There were trash-littered yards, outdoor toilets, rat-infested scrap piles, surface water and open sewers, vacant dwellings, and heavy crime. This was what the newspaper said. Um, a February 1956 series in the Missourian, which is one of our local newspapers, looked at the slums in Columbia. They described the conditions of some of the worst houses and living conditions in the area. For example, they said some two-and-a-half-room apartments had between 10 and 14 people living in each one, and many had no running water. This quote on the screen is from just, she's a um, Caucasian woman in the community who 
decided she was going to write a letter to the city manager about conditions in Columbia because she wanted to know for herself if these houses were really as bad as the newspapers and the city administrators were portraying. So she went to a person she knew in the black community and she had them take her around and do tours of the houses. And then she wrote these really, really detailed letter to the city manager describing what she found and what she thought they should do with urban renewal. She, um, she found that most of the houses she looked at that were really deteriorating were owned by white landlords. She also found that most, one house she described, and it was really interesting because I could, she put addresses in the letter. I mean, this is just like a gold mine letter for historians. She, um, I call it my smoking gun for urban renewal. She put addresses, and then I was able to connect those with um, pictures of houses that had addresses. So you could see exactly which houses she was talking about and even fix it up with the owners of the houses. But she talked about one house where the renters had done so many improvements. They had put new tile on the floor, kitchen floor. They had put new storm doors. They had put new windows. They had done all of this stuff. And for their effort, they got their rate or their rent increased by the landlord. She talked about another house where um, the woman had furniture in it, nice furniture. And every time it rained, the roof leaked and the house flooded and they had to move all the furniture out. So each time it rained, her house got flooded and pretty much destroyed. Um, she concludes her letter with this quote, whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not, the white people of this community bear a heavy burden of guilt for allowing the conditions under which most Negroes have to live. So these two pictures of houses are, um, they're examples of some of the houses that were in the Douglas Urban Renewal Area, as are these. Uh, the open sewer, a lot of the things talk about was the, it's called Flat Branch, and now it's a nice creek with, we have a beautiful park that's with Flat Branch, and it's hard to imagine that one time it was an open sewer. Um, so these are some more of the houses. But there were also houses like this that were in the Douglas Urban area. Here comes our third person, Jim. Um, Come on down. This house in the bottom left-hand corner, her name was Annie Fisher who built that. She was Columbia's famous caterer. Uh, she was a black woman, single woman, single mom, uh, built a catering empire, and pretty much as some... Uh, University-related documents say it wasn't an event in Columbia unless she catered it. So that's the house she built with her own money that was destroyed as part of urban renewal. So in 1956, Columbia citizens voted to establish the Land Clearance for Redevelopment Authority, and they held their first meeting in June of that year. Their main priority was to clear the blighted area, the Douglas School Urban Renewal Area. Their work included relocation of residents, acquisition of property through purchase, condemnation, and eminent domain approval or rejection of renewal plans and negotiation with contractors. So by the beginning of July 56, the city had pinpointed two areas, one of which was the Douglas School area and Cemetery Hill. And there was another survey done in the newspaper that went through and looked at each house and decided if it was good in need of rehabilitation or required clearance. And in Douglas School area, there were 264 houses. They classified 20 as good, 22 in need of rehabilitation, and 222 requiring clearance. They chose Douglas because it was more densely populated and much more of an eyesore. That was a quote. Also, it was in the route of the projected inner loop, which would give visitors their first glance of Columbia. In September 1958, the city council adopted a plan for the Douglas School Urban Renewal Area. And they had several, there's this whole big long history that we don't have time to get into, but they had several bond elections and they actually failed because members of the first ward who were part of the Douglas School Area kept voting them down. 
So they decided to start enacting cigarette taxes and other types of things to pay for urban renewal, to pay for their part besides the federal section. But the Douglas School Urban Renewal Project began officially in May 1959. 73% of the families living in the renewal area, which was 410 of the 563 people or families, were expected to be displaced over the entire project. Although um, plans were in place to prevent residents from being displaced with no place to go, funding problems, communication issues, and other factors kept this from happening. Um, the Stuart Parker Apartments, which was Columbia's first public housing project, opened in August 1959. The housing authorities set special income levels, which prevented some families from qualifying and families were being displaced. Before the apartments opened, the housing authority had 90 applications for only 68 units. The Missourian wrote an article about one of the displaced residents. Her name was Mrs. Edna Monroe, and we've actually talked with several of her descendants. They were very excited to hear this, that she had been interviewed in the paper. She had lived at her house for over 50 years. She was moving into one of the new single units in the Stuart Parker housing development. The reporter wrote that Mrs. Monroe, she knew progress entailed change, but there were things that she was upset about. She had a grandson who had lived with her in her house. He couldn't live with her in the apartments because he made too much money. Uh, it'd be the first time she had ever lived alone. She would miss having a yard and having a place where her large family would, could stay with her. And she also had to give up many of her personal belongings because the new apartment wasn't big enough to hold them all. So um, on March 20th, 1959, there was a meeting held by the Columbia Ministerial Alliance, and about 50 black residents attended the meeting to voice their concerns about the project. The primary concern among community, community members was that people needed help to find areas where they could buy or build houses because there weren't many areas in Columbia where they were allowed to purchase houses. Many of the residents spoke out of the meeting. George Brooks, who was president of the Columbia Civic Improvement League, said that the middle-income blacks were the ones who were most distressed by the project. Mrs. Henry Loving, who lived on Allen Street, said that she and her husband had not been able to find a house to buy. They wanted to buy a house west of McVean Avenue, but that, quote, no one would sell a home there to them because they were Negroes. Louis Noble talked about how he had a few houses and lots for sale, but the people, around 100, who had come to him to purchase lots only had 400 to 500 to spend, and he could not afford to sell his lots for that. One of the areas included in the Urban Renewal Project was the business district on Walnut Street between 5th and 6th Streets that was known as Sharp End. The block consisted primarily of African-American businesses and residences and dated back to the early 1900s. Throughout the 1950s, the block was occupied by businesses such as Williams and Phillips Barbers, Club Deluxe Billiards, various restaurants, a taxi cab service, and liquor stores. One of the most popular restaurants was V's, or Vi's. They said it both ways, people did, which was owned by um, one of our committee members, Larry Monroe. It was owned by his mother. And as a result of the Urban Renewal Project, the restaurant and many of the other businesses closed because they either could not or did not want to relocate. By 1961, most of the businesses had closed, and the buildings on both sides of Walnut were leveled to make way for a post office on the north side and a parking lot on the south side, which is now the location of a parking garage with retail offices on the ground level, which was just built, what, about five years ago? Which was built about five years ago. So up till five years ago, it was a parking lot. Although a few of the businesses relocated to a block a few streets over known as the Strip, this area was short-lived. Like any place, there were mixed feelings about Sharp End. There were negative views of the area, which included um, nightclubs, bars, and dance halls. Some labeled it violent, crime-filled area, but the evidence and memories do not substantiate this. Brooks said, what we face at Walnut and Fifth Street is a skid row. 
Miss Christine Tibbs, who lived on Ash Street, said, This area is a detriment to our race and a bad influence on Negro children. We want to get rid of it as badly as many white people. I think it was probably necessary to have pool halls and shoeshine parlors, but I don't want them next to my home. Now, these were some of the negative views of it. But on the other hand, there were also positive memories of Sharpen. And during our oral, oral history project, other interviewees described Sharpen as the place where the community came together. According to Larry Monroe, he was a barber in Sharpen. It was the lifeblood of the community and economic base, and because of Sharpen, the community had a certain degree of independence. Sihan Williams, another interviewee, reiterated that not everyone went to Sharpen, but he also did not expect the city to tear it all down. This is um, a page from the final report of the Douglas School Urban Renewal Project, and it was completed in July 1966, and over 300 structures were demolished in a 126-acre area. And the final relocation report, in addition to these, reported that 206 families and individuals were relocated into public housing apartments. Each eligible family allowed up to $200 in moving expenses. About 100 families rehabilitated their homes and brought them up to the standards of the city building codes. 66 families purchased their own homes. Many built new homes on lots within the urban renewal area. 29 families or individuals moved into private rental housing. 61 businesses relocated. Columbia... Um, built four public housing, low-income apartment buildings, and the project also brought increased parking facilities. 183 spaces, 100 in the lot at 8th and Walnut, and 83 in the lot at 6th and Walnut, which was sharpened. Okay, this is my favorite picture of the whole thing, and I'm going to tell you a story behind it in a minute. Um, the feeling among Columbia towards urban renewal has never really gone away. I've been giving presentations throughout the community on urban renewal and Columbia's black community for almost 10 years. And over times, I have heard many personal stories, and over and over, the same feelings of hurt and loss of community are brought up. These themes came up again during our oral, oral history interviews. For example, Reverend Gray conveyed that there was a feeling when the project began and Sharpened was included that this had been the plan from the get-go, taking something away from the black community who didn't have the power to do anything. As Tony mentioned, our community has been making an effort to heal these wounds, and there was even a project a few years ago, and it would be a really interesting panel for this conference too, where we had a lynching that occurred in 1920, I always get confused, 23 or 29, 23. And it occurred um, near the Stuart Road Bridge. And they later found out that the man who was lynched, he was accused of raping a young white girl. He was not the one that did it. And on his death certificate, it said, lynched because he was a murderer or he was a rapist so there was a community effort by several people probably five or six years ago to get the death certificate changed so they did and now it says murdered so that was one i see that as kind of one of our first moves towards healing the community and then the sharpen project which jim's going to talk about just a little bit a little bit more um really is helping that process because people wouldn't even if people were around who had been at the lynching, they, nobody would talk about it because it was such a sore spot in the community. But this picture, sorry, now we're switching to a happy note. Um, this picture was actually a huge aerial shot of the university. And the university is about, I don't know, eight or nine blocks south of the yellow highlighted area. And um, I was able to, digital technology is wonderful, I was able to take the picture and zoom in because we don't really have any pictures of sharpened complete sharpened. We just have some of those pictures of buildings right before urban renewal. So we think this is about from the 1950s, and we were able to identify the block of sharpened. 
And um, I got it printed out as a big panoramic and took it to one of our meetings. And the, the older gentlemen who were the committee members were having so much fun looking at this picture and picking out where people had lived and telling me stories about, oh, well, this person used to hang her clothes out and we would take them, we would steal them. And this was the reverend who was telling me this story. He's like, we would steal, we would steal the clothes, run to the rag shop and get money for it. And then he would put him back behind his building. We would steal him again and get more money for him. So it's just, this was just, to me, this is what the whole project was about, getting people to talk about their memories and being able to see things that they no longer get to see because it's all gone. Okay, Jim, your turn. Okay, I apologize for getting here a little late. I was running on Missouri time this morning. I thought my PDA had took care of me, but it, uh, it didn't change over. So, sorry about that. Uh, okay, can I, are you going to do that for me? Yeah, we can do it for you. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, ready to go. All right, uh, my name is Jim Witt. I'm president of the, uh, or chairman of the Sharpen Heritage uh, Committee. Uh, also president of the uh, Columbia Board of Education uh, and executive director of CFAS Sports. Uh, Eighteen of us got together about a year ago uh, to come up with a plan that would appropriately uh, remember Sharpin and what it meant and still means to the black community because it means quite a bit. Uh, this one block, uh, as you probably heard, did not include all of the black businesses in Columbia, uh, but it was the heartbeat of the black community and the place where people went to socialize, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to eat, uh, to have fun. Uh, Sharp Inn for the people in Columbia is really, uh, it's a legendary and historic uh, area. <clears throat> now, you might want to ask the question, and, and this is a question that, that, that I was faced with. Uh, what does a school system of failed Enterprise, uh, enhanced enterprise zone and a Sunday school teacher has to do with building community trust. And that's really what it came down to for me. Uh, the school system, obviously, uh, being on the Board of Education, uh, I was asked to be, to take part in, at that point in time when Columbia was starting an, an enhanced enterprise zone. And, and that was uh, set up to bring new businesses into, into our community. And the way this thing operated is that these businesses would take uh, advantage of state tax credits. And a lot of communities do this. And also there's a 50% tax abatement on the, uh, the new, you know, any new improvements that was done in these enterprise zones. And these enterprise zones had to be located in areas where there was high unemployment and poverty. Okay? So being at uh, the community thought this was a great idea. We set about working with the, uh, uh, the what we call Ready, our Regional Growth and Economic uh, uh, Development Corporation, now, who was, which was headed by a gentleman by the name of uh, um, Mark Brooks. Uh, right off when we started meeting, we had a lot of people from the community would come down and protest. And they were protesting because uh, they said that if you allow these new businesses to come in, uh, they were going to start taking over land. 
you know. And they would take this land from poor people. And they would do the same thing that, you know, today that you did back during the sharp end. So this name sharp end popped up. You know, I kept hearing, you're going to do the same thing for sharp end. So there was a lot, lot of protests. People would come to, the, uh, to our school board meetings and talk about this. They would hand out pamphlets on the history of enterprise zones from all over the country. And, well, needless to say that uh, things were not going well. When the sharp end came up, I remember, you know, a light bulb went off in my head because, you know, uh, the church that I went at, there was a deacon there named Larry Monroe who, who mother owned a business in the sharp end. And Deacon Monroe in Sunday school class would tell us about the times that he grew up and what sharp end meant to him. And they were always great stories. And we'd always get sidetracked and we listened to him talk about that. And you could see from the way that he talked about the sharp end that he really felt, you know, that this was a part of who he was and that the city came in and just took it away, you know. And he said, maybe all, everything wasn't great about the sharp end, but it was ours. It provided jobs. It provided a place for blacks to go at that particular point in time where they couldn't go in other places. So, you know, things started to kind of kind of click. You know, this sharp end really means something to people within this community. Uh, needless to say, uh, the city could not uh, continue with the, the enhanced enterprise zone. The whole project failed. Uh, but Mark Brooks, who ran uh, Ready, uh, I had an opportunity to meet him. And later on, a few months later, he came to me and said, Jim, I have this plan. We're, we're thinking about growing black businesses in this town. We need to do something. I've got a plan that a consulting firm put together for me, and I want you to take a look at it and tell me what you think. And I said, okay, Mark, I'll take a look at it. Or Mike Brooks, sorry. I'll take a look at it. So on, a, on probably the coldest day in January of uh, 2014, we got together, schools closed, nobody out on the roads. We decide we're going to meet anyway, and we're going to talk this over. And, and uh, I looked over the plan, and I said, let me get back with you, and I'll I see what I can offer, you know, in terms of advice. So a few months later, I got back to him, and I said, you know, Mr. Brooks, you know, if you're going to do something in terms of growing black businesses, if there's going to be an effort in Columbia, you have to deal with the sharp end because this is a real sore point. And if you start out with an effort, you will never build any trust within this community until you understand and deal with the issue that, that, that sharp end was a part of this community. And I think that we should put a plan together to do that. And he said, that sounds great. Let's do it. Uh, even though these businesses are, are gone, uh, there, there were a lot of people within Columbia that knew a lot about it. So the first thing I did was get families together. And we'll show you a little bit about the families that we started off with. And I had a meeting with these families and said, you know, here's what I think we ought to do. We are, we're going to put together a recognition program for Sharp End. And they were like, oh, this is fantastic. I don't think any one of them that attended that initial meeting believed that we could make it happen. But they all thought that, yeah, I think it's a good thing for us to do. Uh, one of those uh, people, which uh, Mary has talked about, was Deacon Larry Monroe. He was a Sunday school teacher. You know, I, ha I learned a lot from, 
from Deacon Monroe about the Sharp and through all the vivid stories he would tell about life during those days. He was the real spark of this effort to recognize the Sharp Inn. His mom owned Aunt V's Cafe, which was demolished in 1961, uh, while Deacon Monroe was in Germany serving in the Army. Uh, Barbara Harrell, we called her the, uh, the committee first lady. You know, when she was a girl, she would uh, meet her friends on the corner close to Sharp Inn, and they would always sit back and, you know, look to see what was going on in Sharp Inn. You know, uh, there was a protocol for, for, you know, entering Sharp Inn. You had to be 18 years old or accompanied by somebody, or you couldn't even go to Sharp Inn. You know, that, that was the protocol during that time period. Uh, but to Barbara, Sharp Inn was larger than life. You know, she had family that owned businesses there, and, and growing up, uh, uh, you know, in Columbia, they would have a black and white ball every two years, and everybody would, when people would come back to town, and, you know, from all over the country, the focal point of their talks would always be Sharp End and remembering the stories of things that happened in Sharp End. So it, it, for, for black Columbia, uh, that was it, you know. And people have, you know, we heard stories of people meeting on the battlefields and, 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 you know, the Second World War. And when one of them found out that they were from Columbia, Missouri, the first thing they said, do you know anything about the Sharp End? Is the Sharp End still going, you know? So, so everybody throughout the country, if you had anything to do or stopped in Columbia, you knew who, what the Sharp End was. That's how important it was. Uh, <clears throat> Ed Tibbs. You see a picture of him? He's showing his uh, mother and father in that picture. Uh, Ed Tibbs' uh, <clears throat> dad owned multiple businesses in Sharp End, uh, the arcade, a liquor store, pool hall. Uh, he owned that business with uh, uh, several other people. Uh, he was a part of the golden age of, of Sharp End. That original picture that we looked at, uh, can you, it's the, uh, go back, right here. Uh, Ed's in this picture. He's in the second row, and you see how the people are, are dressed there. You know, everybody's got on a tie, fedora, you know, coat. Uh, you know, Sharpin had a, had a, they had a protocol, you know, and, and they dressed very well. And one of the stories is that that's why the, the place was called Sharpin. There was multiple stories. And Mary and me have told, uh, told you about some of those. But there was multiple stories about why it was called Sharpin, because people dressed nice, you know, uh, when they were on the, you know, when they went down to Sharp Inn for entertainment or to go to a restaurant or something like that. You know, other stories are, you know, about a sharp knife. You know, there's a story about a sharp in alley, you know. So nobody really knows the story. But, but one thing we do know is that you had to dress properly. I mean, the ladies wore, wore very nice dresses when they went out to Sharp Inn. The guys all dressed up. So it was a place that was very formal, you know, for people that went there, you know, for dinner or to the pool hall, or to, uh, to just have uh, a great place for them to go. Uh, Ed Tibbs, uh, uh, we believe, Ed is still in business. Uh, he's the owner of one of the last known facility uh, buildings that were a part of the Sharp Inn. Uh, what you see here is now called Tony's Pizza, one of the most you know, uh, recognizable and well-known pizza uh, restaurants in the city of Columbia. But Ed still owns his building, and uh, he's still, so he's still in business. So there has been at least a, on one part, on his part, a carryover directly from the Sharp End days. 
Uh, this is a, a picture of uh, C.I. Williams when we were taking uh, the, the uh, oral, the oral uh, histories, and we did oral histories with all of the uh, family owners. And, and there's, there's one key thing I want to mention about this picture. Uh, you see that uh, <clears throat> we, have, we have some young people in this picture. And uh, we have a young lady that's actually taking the videos, and we have another young lady that's working uh, with our historian here uh, to ask the questions of the families. And, and these uh, young people represented uh, our, our, our MAC Scholars. Uh, that's an organization that's run by Columbia Public Schools. As a matter of fact, my wife runs that, that organization. And they're dedicated toward improving uh, you know, test scores and, and, and getting better results from the minority students within our community. Uh, <clears throat> what was good is that we wanted to involve our MAC Scholar students directly in this project. And one of the great things that came out of that is that these students finally learned a little bit about their own history. And several of them, uh, the young lady that's behind the, the camera, she actually told us afterwards that because of this project, I've learned so much that I figured out what I want to do in life. I'm going to go to college and I'm going to be, you know, a reporter. You know, I want to do this kind of work for the rest of my life. And, and I'm sure Mary can tell you about, she worked very closely with the other young lady that's, uh, that's in here. But she also, you know, we had an opportunity to interview them. Uh, they learned a lot. One of the comments that she said is that finally I've learned a little bit about my own community. I study about black history, and it's always about people all over the world, but nothing we get is about our own community. So this was an opportunity for her to learn who she was and a little bit of her own heritage and history. Uh, part of the... Part of the, and Sion Williams, uh, he was the dean. We talked a little bit about Sion. He was the dean of the group. Uh, he's 93 years old now. Uh, Dion, I mean, Sion was a trumpet player at the Green Tree Tavern. Uh, he worked uh, in several businesses on the sharp end uh, and also was in the service. Uh, but Sion had lots of story. He's one of the most interviewed uh, uh, black uh, people or person in Columbia because everybody, he's so interesting when he tells stories about the Sharp End, about anything about Columbia. So he's a real source of historical information, um, and we were really fortunate to have, have him sit down in front of our cameras and talk. Uh, to make our projects successful, uh, we had a number of key players that participated. You know, I participated and kind of led the group, uh, Tony Messina, Civic Relations from the city, uh, Vicki Russell, is the publisher of the Columbia Tribune. She participated in this and was a real driving force in terms of, of helping to gain public support uh, and, and to help us, you know, through the publication that you'll see later on that I think Tony will talk about. Uh, uh, that's how we financed, you know, um, the activities that we had to recognize the Sharp End. J.J. Musgrove, uh, the Office of Cultural Affairs, uh, of Mary Beth Brown, our historian, uh, Amy Snyder, Convention and, and Visitors Bureau, and Katie Essing, Downtown Community Improvement District, of which the Sharp Inn is located within that district. Uh, these are the people that really made it possible. We had a lot of great people at the table, you know, and, and we pulled this project off right in about a year's time, which was unbelievable from the start until the finish. 
to get this whole project set up and, and to get a, a big event to commemorate the Sharp Inn. And, and I think even talking to some of the, uh, uh, the city and community members that participated in, nobody thought that a project of this size and scope could be pulled off in such a short period of time. But we did it because we lasered in and focused on what we wanted to do. Uh, the community bought in. Uh, everybody bought in, and I think it was a great experience for everybody that was uh, participated. Uh, Mike Brooks, who was uh, president of Ready, uh, said that when he, he had left at the time that we had our, our main celebration, but he came back and he said that and to, the, to the crowd that was there that uh, uh, the, uh, the creation of our committee and the success that our committee had was the most significant accomplishment that he had in the five years that he headed the Ready organization. Uh, sharp in, <clears throat> sharp in from the early 1900s and to the 60s. Uh, uh, the Sharp in Business District was a city within the city for the Columbia's black community, stretching from Fifth to Sixth Streets on both sides of Walnut. Sharp in was a robust business center with black-owned restaurants, meeting halls, barbershops, bars, and more. In its prime, it was broadly known as the cultural heart of the black community, which included churches, uh, homes, and social clubs. Sharpin was all business children, children, like we said, were not allowed there uh, without parental supervision until they turned 18. Entering Sharpin uh, with an adult was considered a rite of passage. Sharpin was a destination for visitors and a place for black adults to work, dine, and socialize. And work was a major part of it. Sharpin provided a lot of jobs for people who otherwise didn't have the opportunity to work. Uh, entering Sharp, uh, it was demolished during urban renewal, which suddenly and dramatically removed this nucleus from our business community. Uh, Sharpin is back to life, okay? Uh, what you see here is a picture of, of the uh, post office of, you know, that with a lot of, lot of sharp end businesses were located there. And the significance of this picture is not so much the building, but you see sharp end, you see, you know, uh, an American flag there, and you see the sharp end banner flying above all of that. You know, and when people come by and look at that area, they look at it with pride because they see that finally, you know, a part of who Columbia is, and that's why we did this, so that we knew that those family members would soon die off in those stories and that history may go with it. And our goal was to make that a permanent part of, uh, of Columbia and who Columbia was, not only for the black residents of Columbia, but for the right white residents of Columbia so that they would know that this was a viable part of our community. Uh, it's here forever. It's never going to go away. All the work that we have done, uh, all the notes, everything are going to be donated to the Historical Society for future reference. So people will always have a source of, of, of to when, when research is done, you know, we have a source of material to, to go back to. <clears throat> uh, when the projects first started, one of the ultimate objectives was to educate young people about sharp end success so that they would understand two important lessons, you know, that is a part of who we are and that they can re recreate the renaissance of black-owned businesses in our community. And there, you know, we, we really love this last picture because it shows a, a father with his two young daughters looking at, looking at the sign that we erected, you know, for
for to commemorate Sharpian, and uh, uh, that particular gentleman I think was from Jeff City. Yeah, he was from Jeff City. He used to live in Columbia, and so he brought his children up to, uh, you know, because he had heard about the work that we were doing. Now down in Jeff City, there they have a initiative going to recognize their historical Sharpian. We also heard from St. Louis, who had a very thriving downtown uh, uh, black business area. They're uh, interested, you know, in, in putting something up and recognizing their, their black business. Uh, and all over Missouri, we're seeing efforts uh, that smaller communities are looking to do the same thing that we have done in Columbia. So it, it's, been a, a, it's been a source of pride for a number of people. Okay. Um, has it made a difference? You know, from my perspective, it's been great. Uh, there's been a lot of new initiatives that uh, that had that you know we're doing in Columbia to involve and grow black businesses, and and so I've received a lot of calls. I've been asked to serve on a lot of uh, committees, new committees that are propping up. So this whole effort really has built trust within our community, uh, and and uh, it's provided us an opportunity to move forward and not have to deal with the past. So that's my presentation. Thank you. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I love um, the picture that Jim just showed. To me, that's really the money shot. And if you're in the business of wanting to engage current generations with the past, I don't know what else you could could ask for in terms of emotion and recognition. Uh, I'd like to just share a few more photos with you. This is um, most of the Sharp End committee members. I think there were 18 of us um, in total. Some of them could not be there for um, the photo that day, but this group hung together for more than a year and made this event happen. And if you have ever planned events, you know there can be a lot of moving parts. There were for this, everybody had roles, and the execution I don't think could have been really any better. Even the weather cooperated. Um, you'll see Barbara Harrell there, our first lady, pointing to places she remembered in Sharp End. So there she is, a person with firsthand experience um, describing something that isn't there anymore, but uh, that's why she was involved. That's why she was a critical person to capture an oral history from. And I think that's uh, another wonderful thing that future generations will continue to have at their disposal. I believe about 200 people showed up for this event. And committee members distributed three to 4,000 invitations around Columbia and even sent them to people who had lived in Columbia but who weren't there anymore. We invited all of our elected representatives from the city, the county, um, our state general assembly, the governor's office, our congressional delegation, and everybody sent letters or some form of resolution or recognition, and a few of them came and spoke very passionately at this event, and I think it was a good opportunity to involve all of them. Um, there, this is the, the goosebump shot for me. Um, Ed Tibbs and Sion Williams are unveiling the marker, and what re Jim read a few minutes ago are the words that are on the marker. Um, it's 
printed on both sides so you can see it whether you're driving or whether you're walking. Siwa Studios made that for us. They do excellent work around the country. And even though this wasn't part of my personal heritage, I felt as if it was. I felt as if a veil had been drawn back from something that had been covered up for years. I felt adopted by this heritage, and now I feel protective of it. So for me, this was also a wonderful public, experience, uh, public service experience, definitely a smiley face, a really big grin. This was just a, a great thing to be part of. Um, can we go back? Yes. That other picture uh, represents a Columbia, Missouri tradition. Our Chamber of Commerce has a group called Ambassadors. They do ribbon cuttings, and usually this announces the launch of a new business or the rebranding of an organization. We thought it would be a good idea to involve them, and so in a lot of ways this represents the merging of this black business community with the general business community, and there was a lot of goodwill that day flowing back and forth. Um, this is another set of uh, photos that really appeals to me. Mary Beth and I collected artifacts, photos, and some other items from committee members, installed them in a display at City Hall, and if you've ever worked on a display and you just wish people would come and look at it, these people are looking at it. They were up close. They were taking pictures of pages of city directories because they could identify addresses and names of people they'd heard about or they remembered. Astounding to me. I just love that, and I think it's a great thing to continue to do at City Hall. It's like having a community family album. So in the future, I would really like to get more of our neighborhoods involved in things like this. Uh, the Sharp End publication that many of you received when you came in. I'm sorry I didn't have enough for any everybody. But um, this was the product of our work with the publisher of the Columbia Daily Tribune. She put her top reporter on this. Uh, Rudy Keller is a big historian at heart, has done a lot of historical research for Columbia. But this 56-page document probably is a good uh, representation of our current scholarship on Sharp End. He tried to capture history from the 1900s all the way through the present, looking at business directories, talking to people, uh, incorporating pictures. Um, this supplement included advertising from local businesses. And so the revenue that we got or that the, the Tribune got from this supplement whatever wasn't needed to pay for the cost of printing went to the cost of the historical marker. And that marker was close to $2,000. So they really did us a big service by approaching it in that way. And as Jim said, the conversation resumes. I don't know if the community is healed at this point, but from my perspective, I think we're ready to move forward. And, and we actually have something um, to demonstrate that we're listening. Um, there's hope for all of us going forward in the future. Mary Beth is going to bring this session home, so I'll pass it back to her. Um, just really have one last thought. In the Root Chalk book, one of the quotes that really hit home with me, she talks about how to heal from Root Chalk, and it's a grieving process. And she said that she found that, and this is a quote, as groups work with their grief, not only does grief turn into something beautiful, but it also turns into something festive. They remember their pride and happiness. So that's just, I think, kind of sums up hopefully what we were trying to do and we have done. 
That's it. That's the end. <laughs> I do want to pull up, sorry, one more picture that we didn't include in here. Hopefully it's not showing all my pictures. Um, oops, not my kitty cat, sorry. Aww. Okay, good, you guys can see those. Yeah. There's, I took a picture, since I had seen everything that was going on in the program, I went up to the top of the parking garage and took a picture of everybody that was there. And once I get it, I'll stick it in the PowerPoint slide. We can answer questions while I look for it, sorry. Who has questions for anyone? Yes. I'm curious about who initiated the process of forming a committee. Was that something that came from community members or from the city? Because it was, it's a group with a lot of different representations. I'm wondering You mean for the Sharp End Project? Right, yeah. Um, like I said, uh, Mike Brooks, who headed up Ready, um, um, met what we had met when we were working on the, you know, the EEZ, you know, the enhanced enterprise uh, zones, and uh, we met later on. And and Mike, you know, put the request to me. You know, he, he said, you know, we want to create an initiative to to help grow minority businesses. He showed me a study um, that that you know a a group had put together for him that you know outlined you know, a lot of the businesses within that, you know, from the Sharpen era and current businesses uh, within Columbia. And, and he wanted me to look this report over and give him some comments before he started his initiative. I looked that report over and when I got back with, with Mike, I said, Mike, you know, before you start this initiative to grow minority businesses, you know, I think that you gotta deal with what happened, you know, with the Sharpen. You know, because, you know, with all the feedback that I was getting, from the time that we worked on the enterprise zone, I knew that if he made that initiative, if he put it out there, those same sentiments would come up. You know, and knowing what I knew about, you know, the black community, there was literally no trust with, uh, with the city in terms of, you know, any efforts to help grow minority businesses. So when, when I got back with Mike, we agreed that, that, that I would start this initiative out, you know, and we would form a committee and that we would we would recognize the sharp end. So that's how it got started, you know. And that's when I went back and met with the family members. I gathered the family members and said, hey, I think we're going to do this. Mike set up a meeting uh, with the uh, city officials. Uh, I attended. Uh, uh, the city manager attended. Uh, uh, some other people within the city attended. And we sat there and formed that committee and got started. And that's how the work, work got started. Uh, second or third meeting, Tony came on board. Uh, then later on, uh, Vicki Russell from the, the Tribune came on board. So, the, so we added people as we went along, you know, and that's how the work started, and, and that's how it led to what you see in here in this last picture. So, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, they were family members, you know. Uh, Larry, Larry Monroe, my Sunday school teacher, who was telling these stories for all those years that you know, kind of got me interested in Sharp End. He knew a lot of the, they all know each other, you know, and they were all getting over, older a little bit, and, and they would always, anytime you talk to them about Columbia, you know, invariably the, you know, the Sharp End would come up. It was that raw and that important to them. So there was a lot of talk going on all the time about Sharp End. You know, it was a vivid part of the community. So. She had one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm curious about kind of the, 
process of putting the committee together, you talked a bit about kind of how you started adding people on. So at what point did um, you, Mary Beth, get like pulled into the process? Like who connected with who? And you know, uh, how, I guess how long did it take to form your core and, and come up with like what the mission of the committee would be? Well, we knew, we knew early on that we, that we really needed a, a historian. And, and of course, uh, um, Mary had done a lot of work, you know. She was, had been doing work in this area uh, long before the Sharpen Committee, you know, got started. So everybody was very familiar with the work that she was doing. So it was only natural that, that we brought her in, you know, to help us, you know, pull together all of this information, you know, uh, with the, uh, and, and she, she did every, she did the work to develop the, the questions that we were going to ask the families and kind of help coordinate coordinate all of that. I worked with the school system to get us a place and get the students in, you know, to, to do the interviews. And, and she basically uh, ran that portion of it, you know, because she wanted to do it from a historical standpoint to make sure that we were asking the right, the right questions so that we can capture that information. Mary, you want to? Oh, I think you yeah. answered it. Is okay. that? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, um, you mentioned that uh, the sharp end is back. Does that mean like new families or, or descendants of, of old families have moved back in the area and there's more businesses? No, when I, when I say Sharpen is back, it, it's, rather than being back, it's now an official part of who Columbia is. Had we not done this, those memories eventually would have faded away. Right. You know, as this last group of family members died off, you know, that would have been part of our history that, you know, I'm sure it would have been brought up because, you know, over the years there's been various studies on the sharp end, you know, people will, you know, hey, let's, you know. So, so but now, now what we've done is captured those oral histories before all of those people pass along. Um, uh, we've recognized the area that, that sharp end is in, you know, and now uh, sharp end from a historical perspective is, it, it's a part of who Columbia is now. You talk about Columbia. Sharp yeah. going to come up. Hopefully. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. You know, hopefully there's a renaissance. Right. You know, it may not be called Sharp End, uh, but uh, there's various initiatives going on to, to kind of focus in this area and, and, and get some businesses going. Okay. You're right there. Yeah. They're, most of those people are all gone. I don't mean to sound crass, but most of them are dead. Um, there, there is one former city manager who's still alive, but I've never heard anything from him. I've done interviews with him in the past. Um, he was also a city engineer. So I, the only pushback I've heard is a gentleman came up to me in the public library a few weeks ago and asked me if anybody had complained about the banners that are up by the post office being too happy. <laughs> he, he, thought, he thought that if we were trying to commemorate Sharpen, it should be more, I don't know, I tried to explain to him that it was like the North Village Arts District where they have banners for that. I'm like, it's more of a marker just to kind of say, hey, you're in this area. Not really, I said, would have been better if they were in black and white and kind of sad, but he didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm asking because I'm, you know, I'm thinking about how can someone like me or a, a lot of people in this room will take this back. I mean, we, we do we do try to do work a lot with our community, um, and in, in my situation, kind of.
I think the best thing, I've been doing talks about Black Columbia for about 10 years. And when I first started, I got a lot of pushback because I'm not black. I'm not old enough to remember anything. Um, and I'm not from Columbia. And a lot of people would come up to me and tell me that I wasn't getting the story right. And I would explain, well, you've got to tell me your story because we don't have your stories in the historical record. And that kind of started getting people talking and people would talk to me and they would say, well, you know, well, that's where so-and-so lived and this is where so-and-so lived and you really need to talk about that and not this. And because I had the city and the official perspective from the newspapers. So once that discussion and that conversation really got started, I think that helped eliminate some of the pushback from the community members who were weary of things. Um, but like I said, we're kind of lucky everybody's dead. The administrators and stuff. But uh, Mary Beth raises a great point. I think unless you at least are aware of all perspectives, what you're going to end up with is spin in public relations, and you won't have something that's reflective of history. Somebody was back there. Uh, the committee the committee is still meeting. We're evaluating our, our, our next uh, projects. We have a meeting in a, in a week or two, a couple mm -hmm. weeks. And uh, we're looking at additional projects. Everybody wants to, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so we're going to continue to work. One thing that I think is kind of unique about our project is we were all community members. We didn't have any institutional backing at all. Um, I'm, I'm a former archivist, but uh, I'm a PhD student now, so I'm not affiliated with any organization. So it was pretty much just us. So no public programming except for me going, like I'm giving a bus tour during Black History Month of Black Columbia. So just different little local things like that. There's um people have photographs. There's been a lot of ephemera and actual like the trumpet that Sihan played. We had that in our display case. Um, a lot of the a lot of the stuff is still just newspaper. There's not a lot on sharpened, honestly, because it just wasn't an area that people thought they should, you know, keep records of. You know how those things go. We just don't have records of a lot of things like that. So we have newspaper articles. We have a lot of photographs. I have a to lot of people, step out and take a phone call. A lot of people have been bringing photographs in of things. And that's where um, that's where we got a lot of that. I'm sorry. I'm talking saying the same thing over and over again. And we had people that had, we brought in hats and things that would have been used in the era to kind of symbolize sharpening. Thank you. So where are those things going? They all went back to the people. Um, the photographs, I've been scanning them and keeping them so that we can donate them to the Historical Society so they can keep them in their collection. But um, most of the items people are still keeping. We don't really have any repositories in Columbia that are museum type repositories. Oh. Yeah, I mean, there's lots we could try, but yeah, sometimes people, you know, you know people don't want to give their stuff up. Although um, the original copies of those um, recognitions and resolutions from our elected officials will be housed at the uh, John William Blind Boone home, Boone home, which is a historic structure from 1904, former home of a black musician that is in Columbia undergoing restoration. So that's going to be a pride point for them.
Yeah, and we hope that that turns into a somewhat of a museum and they have some rooms that we can do public programming in. But like I said, we didn't have any institutional backing, so it's not like everything automatically went to one place. True, but, and when you say uh, institutional backing, it didn't mean that we didn't have public support. Right. Um, the city provided uh, me, my time. Uh, we helped support um, refreshments for City Hall reception and money for the banners. And also, uh, we are going to continue to maintain the sharp end marker because it's placed in a landscaped area on city right-of-way in front of a city parking garage. So it's public property, and we're going to take care of it. I think we had time for maybe two more. Yeah. Yes? I just wanted to ask about, kind of following up on that, is there a repository in mind for the oral histories? Yeah, they're going to go to the State Historical Society. Oh. And then they're also probably going to go to the public library because they're creating a digital database of local community history. So we're probably going to send it to both. That way, both areas can have it. One more. Um, I'm wondering um, how this project um, might have affected any current development programs that are going on. So it sounds like um, development programs sort of spurred all this. Is it making an effect on the community in that sense? Um, you mean like business development? Yeah, well, I mean, the urban renewal created the issue, um, a development project started. Oh, started the issue. Is it going to affect what happens in the future? Uh, how, how funny you should mention that. Uh, a few years ago, they talked about um, not urban renewal, but redeveloping the public housing that was built as part of urban renewal. And they wanted to tear everything down and start over again. And then the question was, where are the people going to go? Um, they are going to rehab those houses, but from what I understand, the um, housing authority is doing a better job this time, because we have hindsight to look back on, of finding places for people to go while they rehab the existing structures. Not only are they doing that, but um, they're also making a concentrated effort to um, include minority business owners and contractors in doing some of that rehab work as much as they can with the people who are available in the area. And that's kind of an interesting offshoot. Jim mentioned um, interest in encouraging the growth of minority businesses. That's happening. It's part of the city's new strategic plan, as is addressing um, imbalances and injustices between the races and um, in income groups and other demographic groups. I think it's pushed our, our thinking forward. All we have to do is deliver. Thank you very much for your attention. Good luck with your projects. I didn't know what you meant. Yeah, because that's what they would.